The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. And I'm Brian Moon from Perigene Technologies. Today, we're very pleased to welcome Micah Ensley. Dr. Ensley is widely recognized as a pioneer and world leader in the study and application of situation awareness in advanced systems. She is a former president of the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society and former chief scientist for the U.S. Air Force. Dr. Ensley is the author of over 200 scientific articles and reports on situation awareness, decision-making, and human system integration. She is widely cited in professional journals. She co-authored the book, Designing for Situation Awareness, and speaks extensively at conferences. Dr. Ensley has a PhD in Industrial and Systems Engineering from the University of Southern California. She is a certified professional ergonomist. Welcome, Micah. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Laura. I'm happy to be here. Great. Well, I love to hear stories about how people got started. So the first question I have for you is, do you remember the first paper you ever published? And can you tell us about that? I definitely do. It was a paper that was in the Human Factors and Ergonomic Society annual meeting. And it was uh, an out- outcome of my master's work. And it was on the effect of automation on people. And what I was really looking at was how do you implement technological change and trying to overcome resistance to technological change. So at the beginning, I was much more involved in the organizational uh, design and management section of the society. And uh, the, uh, the work that I did, we studied the automation of clean rooms at a company that made telecom equipment in the Midwest. And that's where I really first started getting interested in automation and decision making and how automation affects people. Interesting. So it sounds like when you say um, resistance to technological changes, um, it, it's it sounds to me a little bit like you've had a perspective shift. Like like initially the focus was on why people why won't people just use the technology, and now you're all about how are we going to build technology that really supports the humans. Is that a fair? I, I think that is fair. Um, and you know, initially you start off with you know why won't they use this? This this is wonderful stuff. And when you get into studying it and you realize really there were a lot of barriers to, to people using the equipment. It wasn't this I added the old adage, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. That turned out to be not true at all. And that many of the people wanted to embrace the technology, but but there were there were simple things that got in the way of them uh, being able to use it properly. And so that really led me down a whole nother path. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear where people started and then how they, where they wound up. And so now you, um, you know, you've done this research on situation awareness that has influenced the aviation, the healthcare communities, among many others. And I am wondering if there are one or two insights about SA um, that most people don't appreciate that you'd, you'd highlight. Well, I think a lot of it is is fairly well known. I mean, situation awareness is fundamental to decision making. Pilots tend to intuitively understand this. They were at the, the front line when I started studying this uh, in the 80s. Pilots were the group who really talked about situation awareness. And I was looking to figure out, well, what really is situation awareness? Because I thought at the time that it might be part of the problem with this out of the loop 
uh, problem that we saw with, with automation. And I was working with our AI group at Northrop Aircraft uh, who, were, who were developing Palace Associate. And at the time I needed a dissertation. And so I, I uh, started looking very closely at this, this whole issue of, of the out of the loop problem. And I had to try and figure out what situational awareness was. Pilots sort of intuitively understood this. To me, they were really sort of like the canary in the coal mine in terms of uh, dealing with difficult systems, complex systems, overload, fatigue, having to uh, figure out how to deal with this to gather and integrate and understand situation awareness to make their decisions. So they were a wonderful group to, to begin studying. And since then, we've seen the same problems spread to to other environments as they've been flooded with the same kinds of problems, sensors, lots of technologies, automation that sort of affected everyone. Um, you, you asked me about, you know, what are, what are some things people may or may not appreciate? David Meister once said to me, you know, isn't it all about attention? And, and I had to say, yes, it was, but it's, but it's also about more than that. It's, it's about how people integrate and interpret that information. And so the role of mental models is huge in terms of influencing not just what people pay attention to, but also how they interpret that information. And we see the effects of this in things like anchoring and confirmation bias. It, it, it's really looking at how people have to process that information that they perceive. And this happens not just in the world of pilots or physicians, but it's happening every day in how people gather and interpret what's going on in public affairs. So what we see in the news today where some people, what some people call fake news is, is, is the actual news or vice versa. They don't know how to, how to interpret the information that they're perceiving because they're all viewing it from this very different lens and very different mental model. So it's, it's, it's fascinating to me from that perspective. Yeah, so this, this is interesting. I'm glad you raised this. Um, so you have actually, I've heard you give talks recently about how people are, everyday people are processing this information in the news. Um, and, um, and, and so this link uh, from, uh, you know, uh, essay started out focusing on pilots in this, you know, very dynamic um, life and death situation. And, and now you're thinking about it in this, in this um, very different context. Um, what, I guess I'm not sure what my question is exactly. It's just that this is really an interesting space. Um, yeah, please. it has been a very interesting space. Um, what what when I really started looking into this, it, it was it was quite dismaying because I've been studying exp expertise and situation awareness and experts for a very long time, and we're, we're typically dealing with people like physicians or pilots or air traffic controllers or military commanders, people who have a very strong vested interest in making sure that data they're getting is correct, and that they're interpreting it correctly and, and to make good decisions because they know lives depend on that. And they may not always be successful, but at least they're trying very hard to make sure that they're as objective and accurate as possible. And then I look over here in this other space, the space that we're surrounded with every day, uh, how people are processing all of the news and information that they, they receive. And it could be from websites or traditional news sources or their neighbors. And I don't see the same kinds of processes being put into place, where, whereas 
I, and I don't think they realize that they're not being as objective about the data as they could be, but I see them falling prey to a lot of the kinds of decision biases that Kahneman Tversky warned us about many, many years ago. I'm seeing that much more in this space uh, where people uh, don't seem to be alert to the, the dangers of misinformation or they don't seem to have as good of, of, of facilities for being able to distinguish accurate from inaccurate information. So they fall prey much more readily to these kinds of decision biases. So I read something that um, drew this um, analog or, or a metaphor to, to like rooting for a sports team. And they, they said some people have become so entrenched in a perspective that they just, they're, they're looking for things that confirm that. Um, so you want your team to win. And and if, if your team believes this thing, then you're just looking for more evidence that supports that. Um, and you're not being objective. Um, does that resonate with you at all? Absolutely. It's the classic anchoring and then confirmation bias in terms of what information you look for and what information you um, will discount. Uh, much of the information is available to say that this worldview is incorrect, but they they discount any information that conflicts with that. So so there's a lot of cognitive dissonance that goes on, a lot of confirmation bias. And the whole challenge of how do we break people out of that confirmation bias is really difficult. Um, the research that, that uh, people have done on this so far shows it to be a, a very complex and difficult problem that people can get more and more entrenched. And I think the issue is that their motivations are quite different. They're motivated to stick with that worldview that they're happy with. They're not motivated to um, deal with an objective reality the way that um, the typical experts that we study are. And I think what I've come to recognize is that there's a whole social emotional kind of thing going on in this, this space and it's not strictly cognitive. Yeah, yeah, that really resonates with me too. I I have this sense that there's a, a yeah, social emotional cultural like this is what my family believes or this is the kind of people we are or you know there's there's something more than just I want to understand the situation. People, they, they seem to be uh, um dealing with it much more the way they would deal with a religion than yeah. they would with a with 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 than with purely an information space. Yeah. Very interesting. So it's, 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 a fascinate, it's a fascinating problem. And, uh, but I do think there are things that we can do to address it, uh, to help people better recognize the information. If you, if you look at what's going on in the world today, people get bombarded with all kinds of conflicting data. It's largely verbal. Um, and they don't, they don't know how to distinguish good from bad other than saying, I'm going to believe the people that uh, believe like I do, I have more faith in them. So their ability to sort out accurate from inaccurate information sources is really largely tied to that mental model of what they believe in the first place. Um, it, it's one way of dealing with conflicting information, but it doesn't necessarily um, help to detect when you've got a faulty mental model. So what I've been looking at is what are ways to break people out of that to help them better understand information and being able to check the veracity of their information sources, that that may be an avenue to help people uh, recognize this. There, there's also some really interesting research in how do we encourage people to be more open-minded? 
you know, some people are very closed-minded. This is what they believe they're never going to change. Uh, and that influences then how they perceive information. But there is a, a characteristic trait of open-mindedness. And if we can help people to be more open-minded, they may be more accurate in how they process that information, which, which really is important to how people function in their role as citizens in, in this country. So as you are learning about this, are the kinds of solutions, the kinds of things that help people break out or be more open-minded, are they um, things that uh, a person has to want to do? <laughs> do? I mean, do you have to persuade someone to try to, 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 to take these things seriously? I think you do. And, and the, the literature shows that there are some people, quite frankly, you're never going to reach. They're always going to be very close minded and they're never going to change. But there is a persuadable set of people who I think probably are very open to learning and to other viewpoints, um, but are just simply unaware of the limitations of, of what's going on in their own processing of information. So I think there is a group of people that, that can be uh, reached or influenced in terms of better understanding the information that they're they're processing in in the world. And are there solutions about how we present information to them? I think that's one set of of solutions. It's how we how we present information to them, how we help people process and understand the reliability or, or veracity of information. Uh, I think there is a lot of group dynamics that come into play, though. So there's a lot of room for social psychology. Uh, there's a lot of, of issues with this whole open-mindedness in terms of how people process information. This is really a, a wide open area. I'd, I'd like to say, oh, we have all the answers here. But what's become obvious to me is we definitely don't have the answers. And uh, I think it's it would be a great area for, for anybody looking for a, a doctoral dissertation or a master's thesis. There's a lot of really good uh, research that's needed in this area. I agree. And, and part of what makes it um, so studyable right now is that people are posting viewpoints publicly on, on Twitter or Facebook. Or, um, so there's lots of information that already exists that's publicly available that can help you start to see how, how different folks um, are processing and what they take as credible and what they don't. Oh, yes. It's, it's a very easy field to to reach out. It's the people all around you. So it's easy to gather data in the area. Um, if you have a good model for how to approach uh, collecting and, and studying the problem set and maybe what some of those inter interventions might be, um, I, I would love to see some more work in this area. Micah, you mentioned both uh, religion and social psychology. There's a classic text in social psychology called When Prophecy Fails. Uh, and it is a, it's a naturalistic study. Uh, the methods actually uh, are a little controversial because the, uh, the uh, researchers didn't tell uh, the participants in the study that they were actually studying them. But it's about uh, a UFO, a small UFO religion. Uh, and they essentially laid out what happens when this um, leader of this uh, small group uh, puts forth a prophecy and says on such and such a date, this, that, or the other thing's going to happen. And of course, the time comes, it passes. And so it's the book's really about what happens after, right? And so, so what, what, what can we learn about uh, 
how people will believe in something uh, when it when it doesn't happen or when it goes wrong. So um, it's kind of it's an interesting application uh, of of naturalistic methods that uh, are, like I said, a little controversial. But it's a great little book, and it uh, it talks about a lot of the things that you're discussing. Yeah, that's a that's a classic study, and that was I think where the term cognitive dissonance first came came from was when the UFOs didn't come, then they could explain that away by something that fit their model that said, oh, they, 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 they did, the, the aliens didn't come because we had uh, been so good in uh, praying for this problem to go away or something. So they, they, can, they can explain everything away to fit that mental model. And we've seen this in, in uh, expert decision makers. We see that we've seen this in physicians who continue to explain away symptoms that don't fit the original diagnosis uh, we've seen this in uh, uh, pilots who will mismatch information that's in the environment to the wrong mental model. Uh, so it's it's a it's a common way in which we process information. And the real question is, how do you break people out of that bubble? Hmm. Uh, one of my graduate students, Deborah Jones, did a did a whole study on this with air traffic controllers, where we intentionally introduced a an incorrect mental model. This was in a simulation environment, not 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 the real world, in a, a simulation environment. And she threw all kinds of cues at them to, to see what kind of cues would be most likely to help them catch the fact that they'd gotten a wrong piece of data at the beginning. And some were things that happened that shouldn't have happened, if that was correct, or things that, that, that did happen that, you know, or didn't happen that should have happened. And then there were subtle cues. And then there were completely obvious things that were just complete mismatch. And what I thought was really interesting about the study was that she found that even with the most obvious bizarre cues, in 60% of the cases, the air traffic controllers never, never noticed or never corrected the problem. Hmm. So the vast majority of time, the problem went incorrected. And, and when she went back to question them after the fact, um, it turned out that many of them could say, oh, yeah, I saw that but they would explain it away. So that my, my favorite example was a, a plane that was, uh, it was a 7, 737 or 747 at that time uh, going cross country at 10,000 feet. Well, 747s do not, do not go cross country at, at 10,000 feet. That should have been an obvious cue that something was wrong there that they should have, have questioned. And, and the response from the controller was, oh yeah, I saw that, but I just figured it was carrying the space shuttle. <laughs> so it's like, wh where did this come from? They, they, they'll, they'll find some, some uh, reason out there that they can find to make the data fit what, what, what's there. And that's, that's how difficult it is to break people out of these, uh, these, these bubbles, these information bubbles. And, and I worry about that when we, we see this problem, we take it to the, to the real world issues that we have right now with, with fake news they don't, people just don't take a step back and say, is this accurate? Is this not accurate? It, how does this match with, with, with reality? They just keep getting sucked into things that will explain the data to, to fit what they want to fit, what they, what they want to believe and rejecting all the external data. So we, we have, we have a perfect storm. Now the, the internet was supposed to be a, an information. We're supposed to be in the information age. And I think we're in the misinformation age as we've hmm. created all these unique misinformation bubbles. And that to me is a, is a huge challenge. Right. Um, 
So that's a challenge we should be focused on now. I'm wondering if you can sort of reflect back on your career and just, are there any particular projects, any one project that stands out as particularly fulfilling for you? You know, there were so many projects uh, that that I was involved in. Um, In the early days, I was involved in the cockpit automation technology program and the pilots associate program. And those, I think, really were, were foundational to both the problems that I work on and to really understanding how human factors uh, fits into the design process in industry. Um, I spent um, nine years working with the Army's Advanced Decision-Making Collaborative Technology Alliance with with some of you. And that was a wonderful time to be studying situation awareness and decision-making in teams in, in the military in very challenging situations that then rolled into uh, our company's work on the Future Combat Systems Brigade Combat Team Modernization Program, where we really got to put into practice all of these cognitive engineering tools and essay earned design tools that we'd been working on. We were able to put it into practice for complex command and control systems. So to me, those were were really uh, gratifying experiences. We had a wonderful team at SA Technologies that was heavily involved in all of these programs and and that really made it fun. I noticed you didn't include your uh, chief scientist role in there. Is that, do you consider that um, uh, out, sort of outside of your, your research work or is it part of what you think of as, as projects? That was, a, you know, that was a whole unique experience that was just sort of it was kind of existential. It was, it was, it was really very different than my role as a researcher. Um, you know, my, my experience serving as the Air Force Chief Scientist was, was really very positive. Um, I went in there thinking that, you know, this is going to be very bureaucratic. There would be a lot of entrenched thinking and people would be resistant to change. And what I found was completely the opposite. Um, people, the leadership was very open to new ideas. They were very actively seeking innovation. Um, and, and they were really open to what I would talk about in terms of human factors. They just largely didn't know a lot about it. Uh, and what I really discovered in my time there was that the kinds of problems that we would see in a, a particular system, whether it be a, a display or a cockpit or what have you, kinds of human factors problems that we would all pick up on right away were largely invisible to them. They, they didn't just just weren't attuned to, they didn't have the same filter to, to pick up and understand what the real challenges of these systems were for human performance or how those could have been solved in the, in the development process. So uh, I've learned that we have a, uh, not just an educational role. I think we, we talk a lot about the importance of what we do and, the, and people are very receptive to that. They nod their heads but then they don't see where those problems are in systems. So it's, it's, a, it's a practical gap. And uh, what I learned from that is that we have to um, get better at not just talking about what we do as a practical matter, but, but trying to come up with ways, tools that allow them to understand where we fit in that organization and how to make those kinds of organizational changes that would uh, prevent problems in the future. Interesting. So I'm going to um, I'm going to just follow on to that a little bit. So the chief scientist role is one example. Um, and another one I'm thinking about is, is you started you you were one of the folks who helped start the um, journal for cognitive engineering and decision making. 
which was really intended and is a, a journal that um, is pretty innovative. It, it publishes um, really important work that maybe doesn't fit in other journals. And so I think of you as someone who has kind of been at the forefront of some important movements, who's, who has been uh, someone who's, who's kind of stepping up and introducing ideas based on what you've studied and what you know to folks who aren't used to thinking that way. And I just, I wonder, do you have any insights as you, you reflect on, on those situations where you've kind of been standing up and talking to people who just aren't familiar with your background and making the case for them to think in a new way? Well, as I said, there's, I find that a lot of people are very receptive. They're open and receptive to the messages that, that we provide and they're receptive to our ideas, but they don't, they say, oh yes, that's interesting. And they go back to doing work the way they've always done it. And what we have to do is to work harder to find ways to fit what we, what we do into the organizational models and systems that are in place. Um, and that's, that's difficult. Uh, so for example, one of the things I, I discovered was, I'll go back to this idea that human factors problems are invisible to them. They, they, they'll agree with us in, in theory, but then in the practical application, they don't, they don't see what those issues are until, of course, it's much too late. So one of the things that I decided to, to focus on while I was chief scientist was the idea of human readiness levels. In the military, NASA, DOE, a lot of our large organizations, they, they all talk about technology readiness levels. And I found that the leadership completely understood if you said something was a technology readiness level of six or five or, or seven, they intuitively knew how ready that technology was and what it meant for uh, including it in funding cycles and where programs had trouble and needed more management attention. A very simple one to nine number. And I thought, well, what we need is, is to have a one to nine number for human readiness levels. And that is whether or not all the detailed human factor stuff that, that we do had been applied to a given system. So that was something I started talking about. Um, it was actually an idea developed by Hector Acosta many years ago, and there was some good work at the Naval Postgraduate School on it. Um, but I decided to let's take that idea and let's let's see if we can't implement that. And that's something that we're we're working on today. We actually have an ANSI uh, standard effort going on to formalize these uh, human readiness levels, uh, and I think. That could be very exciting. This could be one of those leverage points, a tool that will allow non-practitioners of our field to at least understand at a basic level that, oh, this only this system's only at a two. It really needs a whole lot more human factors attention to get it up to a seven or a, or a 10. Um, if they can just understand it at that level, I think those are the kinds of tools that might allow us to be more effective. That's yeah, that that feels like a great insight. I think um, one of the struggles we have in our field is um, talking to uh, not just talking to ourselves, finding ways to communicate uh, our insights and our findings um, and our methods in ways that other uh, folks that, that, that really resonate with other folks that become usable to them. Um, yes, it's kind of like the old adage, physician heal thyself. Um, we're not good communicators of what we do. And, and I think we've always struggled with, you know, what's our elevator speech about uh, human factors and what is our, 
how, how do we explain to people what we do? And, and I, I think we can't do that without getting into these whole long complex discussions. And by that time, people have you know, moved on. They're not that interested. They don't wanna hear the nitty gritty details about our processes. So we have to find ways of communicating it in a much simpler, easier way. Yeah. Yeah. So on that note, when you reflect back on your career, are there barriers that have been more difficult to overcome than you anticipated? Uh, points have been just hard to make that never landed? <laughs> uh, well, one of the biggest barriers has been whether it's situation awareness or situational awareness. That's a debate that still that still goes on 30 years later. Um, but by the way, uh, it, it a, a grammarian once explained to me that situation awareness is awareness of the situation. Situational awareness is awareness that just happens sometimes. Oh. Uh huh. Yes, and that's why situation awareness is is grammatically correct. But uh, we find I find situational awareness still gets used all the time, uh, a lot in, in the military, a lot. So that that remains a, a common problem. I've given up uh, worrying about that one, but uh, that's the way it is. I think I think the other bigger biggest barrier has been really true integration of human factors with the engineering community. Um, you know, I come from a design background uh, and an engineering background. I'm used to working with other engineers. And our processes are, and even our approaches are very different than the ones that they're used to, which are much more analytical, build it kind of, of they can fit their things in a box. And we have to find ways of doing our work earlier and having those, uh, design inputs into formats that they can use so that we can do things like participate in trade studies. Um, we have to be much better integrated with engineering processes than I think a lot of our work is today. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I think that that does remain a challenge for our community. What is the most exciting thing you're working on today? Well, um, right now I'm actually collaborating with others to see if we can find some uh, physiological correlates for situation awareness. Um, Right. The, the, the traditional measure of uh, situation awareness has been the SAGIT technique, which we've shown to be very effective in simulation environments. But some people want to find a measure of SA that they can use in real world settings. That's a more continuous measure of SA. Uh, we know subjective measures don't work. They uh, really provide a, an index of people's confidence level, but not necessarily how accurate their situation awareness is. So subjective measures don't actually work that well for collecting data in the real world. Uh, we're thinking that physiological measures may be uh, a, a candidate because they can, you can collect continuous real-time data in ways that don't involve questioning the individual. Um, I, don't, I don't know how well this is going to work. Um, I don't think it's, there's anything in, the, in terms of brain signals that's going to be a perfect representation of how accurate you are. But I do think that we can identify a number of states that we know are bad for situation awareness, things like fatigue, stress, overload, underload. Um, you know, there's a number of states that are, uh, we can measure physiologically that we know create problems for situation awareness. Uh, there's also a number of states that we know uh, are correlate with high situation awareness. So things like engagement levels and uh, expectancies that can be measured physiologically. So I think there are some things that we can do to try and bound the problem some and at least be able to indicate some high and low 
SA states uh, physiologically. So that's, that's a really interesting and, and new area that I'm currently working on. That does sound interesting. So what, what kind of physiological measures? Well, right now we're starting with a, um, a whole set of measures and um, our, so we have a, it's a battery approach and uh, we're going through and validating those measures against uh, the SAGIT tool so that we can uh, assess and, and predict SA in some of these more complicated, complex environments. So things like variance in heart rate and, and um, all those kinds of EEGs, heart rates, eye trackers, FNIRs. I mean, there's there's a variety of measures that people have proposed or have looked at, and we're we're taking a, a broad approach to those. So, Micah, you mentioned earlier your your graduate students' work, and and I know you've mentored lots of people um, as they begin their careers, both in your company and and obviously in in graduate school. I'm wondering what kind of advice you give to people who are just starting out in the field. Well, my biggest advice is find interesting problems and work on them. Um, there are problems all around us, whether it's in the work environment. You know, I've talked about the, the fake news problem that, that's around us in, in our regular lives. Um, there's always interesting problems. And if you just set yourself to working on one of those interesting problems, I think you'll, you'll end up feeling very fulfilled. Um, my, my, my second piece of advice is, is, you know, work with interdisciplinary teams. Too often we see people sort of stay in their own little uh, bubbles of other like-minded individuals. And I think it really behooves us to get out and work with these broader multidisciplinary teams that have different perspectives, because I think there's a lot of, of low-hanging fruit that is involved at the intersection of different uh, communities. And then the, the third piece of advice that, that I give to students and, and, or, or early career uh, people is to get involved. Um, I think a lot of the best um, experiences that I've had have been my involvement in the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society uh, with the Cognitive Engineering and Decision-Making TG, with the journal, uh, being on council. Um, it, to me, it's it's been a great way not just to give back to the profession, but it's been really um, wonderful for me in terms of all the people that I've met and the um, opportunities that I've had because of those uh, experiences. So I, I absolutely encourage people to, to get involved in, in their professional society. Nice. So, um, so looking at it from the other side, who are three people that have really influenced your thinking and inspired you over the course of your career? Oh, there's been so many. Um, I'd have to say first, Jane Fraser. She was my professor at Purdue, and she introduced me to the work of Stu Dreyfus on decision-making that was very oh. fundamental to my, my later uh, formulation of the SA model. Um, Hal Hendricks, who, uh, of course, was a longtime leader in the Human Factors Society and the organizational design and management work, who, who really, uh, I think, illustrated to me uh, the real benefits of, of involvement in, in our society. And then uh, Mark Chignell, who was my mentor and advisor in my PhD work. And what I think all three of those people have in common is that I didn't just learn a lot from them technically, but I think I also, that they to me, they modeled the best of academia and what it means to support researchers and students and other people. And uh, I, I've I found them to be real role models in that regard. We've talked about kind of fake news, but the other big 
issue our world is facing right now is is COVID. And I wonder if you have thoughts about what our community can and should be doing in the context of this global pandemic. Yeah, the, the COVID pandemic has been quite an experience for all of us. Um, one of the things that, that we did on the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society, um, one, one of the hats I wear there is, is our government relations um, committee chair. And we immediately got involved in trying to identify what can we as a society be doing to help with COVID and uh, produce several policy papers that people can download. And, and there, were, there are a number of areas. One is just uh, the whole issue of communications. And we found that people who were on the front line fighting COVID were having to deal with very antiquated uh, information systems where they couldn't find what the latest procedure was, for example, to do something. And it was changing very rapidly, uh, particularly in the early days of, of the pandemic. So we need to do things to help improve our communication systems in, in hospitals, for example, and in our communication systems with the public. Uh, as the public was getting all kinds of conflicting and misleading information, how do we, how do people sort through that and have a, a single site to go to that's useful and readable and understandable? Um, I've been to the CDC website many times and useful and readable and understandable is probably not the words I would use. So <laughs> right. we, we, need, we need better um, communication tools and better for, for helping people to, to sort through rapidly changing information. Um, so, I'm sorry, can I just ask a follow-up there? You, yes. you mentioned um, communication in hospitals. So are you thinking about the administrators who are trying to figure out, do they have enough beds? Or are you thinking about frontline workers? Um, are these Is this the right treatment or all of the above? What, what are you thinking about there? Well, there, there are issues for the administrators for things like just the logistics of, of pandemic management. So tracking supplies against needs and so forth. Uh, but the communications problem we were, we were finding was hitting people who were, you know, the, ner the scrub nurse who needs to don uh, PPE. And the rules and regulations for that were changing very rapidly as to what should they and shouldn't be doing. Uh, so it was it was very much uh, communications of changing policies and procedures that were happening at that time. I see. I see. Um, the whole logistics, the, the, the logistics is is, is another uh, major issue that I think the our profession can be involved in. You know, just understanding where the needs are and what the supplies are, and trying to do a miss a match of that. That was a real struggle uh, early on as the states were in bidding wars against each other, trying to get the uh, protective equipment and the ventilators that they needed. Um, nobody really knew where the supplies were, what shape they were in when they'd last been checked. Um, they didn't know things like uh, if, if they had um, masks, what size they were, for example. Um, so some very basic kinds of things simply weren't being managed. Um, the other, the other thing really is, is a lot of it has pointed out our, our healthcare system is not very effective. We have a real uh, patchwork system, and you know we are we're systems thinkers. That's that's a lot of what we do in our profession, and I think that we could be involved in helping to better define what our healthcare system needs to be like going going forward once all of this is over. 
So there's a lot of areas that, that we can get involved in, you know, the whole issue of information flow to the public, trying to help in those areas. Uh, but you have to be able to take a, a very uh, long-term view of it. Uh, and I don't think a lot of that has happened. Yeah, yeah, I think we're in a very reactive mode at the moment. And once it's over, people say, oh, great, we can go back to business as usual, and they, and they won't go back and fix the problems. So uh, when we have another one of these, possibly in the not-too-distant future, we could be in the same boat again. That's a depressing thought. It is. <laughs> it is, which is why we have to we have to do the systems thinking and get these things addressed. So NDM could, uh, could help out here. Um, and I'm just wondering sort of to capture your thoughts you're the essence of you for NDM. So a hypothetical question, let's say you meet a complete stranger who claims to practice NDM and on the pain of death, you're given one question to determine if they do indeed practice NDM. What do you ask? My question would be, who do you study? And, and I say that because sometimes we get focused in on, you know, where, where it occurs. And a lot of our work occurs out in the field in naturalistic environments, but also a lot of good quality work occurs in complex simulation environments. So it could be in a field or it could be in a simulation environment. But I think one thing that is um, very specific about NDM is we try to study people who are actually solving real world problems. So when I say, who do you study, if you tell me, oh, you're studying nurses or you're studying pilots or you're studying air traffic controllers or you're studying um, voters, you know, those are real world people. If you tell me you're studying college students, uh, then right away, I know you're not really getting at these real world tasks that that people are uh, addressing. So that to me is probably the biggest differentiator. Who do you study? So not even not even experts, but people engaged in real world stuff. Real, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they could be novices, and you know, we we study experts. But we also study novices and people intermediates, people going through that learning process. Those are all fair game for I think the kinds of of uh, people and problems and tasks we need to be looking at. Um, but but it's it's not these, you know abstract tasks in a psych lab with, with college sophomores is, I think, not what NDM has typically been about. Right. And we tell our participants that they're actually in a study. So that's another good thing we do. <laughs> All right. Now, a couple, couple of fun questions. The first one is, uh, tell us one thing about you that you think the audience probably doesn't know. One thing that the audience probably doesn't know. Well, um, in my spare time, I do uh, copper artwork. So I work with natural patinas on copper and create art. Wow. I did not know that. <laughs> See, you didn't know that. <laughs> Has, will anyone have seen your work? Um, well, I did donate some to the um, auction that we had at the Human Factors Ergonomic Society. They have a little auction. Oh, yeah. That is for raising money for college scholarships, and so I've donated to that in the past, and maybe I will next time. So go to the auction, and maybe you'll see some. <laughs> How would you get involved, and why copper? You know, it was just something I was intrigued with, and I really like the – I'm not a very artistic person. I can't paint or, or draw very well. But I was just fascinated with the different types of patterns and colors that you can produce in – uh, copper all through natural chemicals and patinas. So maybe it's my inner chemist. 
So, um, so the second fun question. Um, so you have, over the course of your career, interacted with people who are expert in many, many different things. If you could instantly become an expert in something, what would you choose? I think if I could instantly become an expert, the thing that I would want to know a lot about is the whole issue of green energy and what we can do to develop new energy systems for replacing where we're at right now with fossil fuels. To me, this is the big question and the big issue that will be consuming us for the next couple of decades is changing our entire uh, mechanism for, for energy production. Interesting. So that maybe that's your next career. <laughs> maybe it's my next career. Well, I did, I did buy a Tesla. Um, I, I said it was to study automation, but really I was, I really liked the battery technology and I wanted to see if we were ready to, to live in a world with electric vehicles. And, and I think the answer to that is yes, that we can easily convert uh, if not every vehicle, a lot of vehicles to uh, electric battery technology very successfully. Have you put your $100 deposit down on a Cybertruck? I have not. I'm not sure I need one of those, but uh, <laughs> maybe you could do that. You have, you have to haul copper. <laughs> I have to haul copper. Luckily, luckily copper doesn't weigh too, way too much, and we produce a lot of copper here in Arizona, so I'm close to the supply. Great. Well, um, this has been wonderful, um, Micah. I want to thank you for speaking with us today. Happy to be here. It was very nice talking with you. Yeah, this has been a real pleasure. Um, so on that note, I want to thank you for joining us for the NDM podcast. I'm Laura Melatello. And I'm Brian Moon. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org. Thank mm-hmm. you.